Bruce Linton is an absolute legend in the psychedelics and cannabis industries. Bruce was the co-founder and CEO of Canopy Growth Corporation, the largest cannabis company in the world. He was also one of the earliest investors in mind medicine when it was still a private corporation. And he's currently the chairman of the advisory board of Red Light Holland, the only publicly traded psychedelics company that is going after the recreational market. So I'm super excited to bring you this conversation with Bruce. We cover all sorts of topics like Bruce's time in the cannabis industry and some of the lessons he learned in cannabis that can now be applied to the psychedelics industry. He also shed some light on things that have been going on with mind medicine, like JR stepping down as CEO. Why did Bruce, as well as many other insiders in MindMed, recently sell their shares? And he also sheds light on some very deceptive paid promotion and pump and dump strategies that are very common in the psychedelics and cannabis industries. And of course, he tells us all about his most recent project, Red Light Holland. Now, during the course of this interview, you will hear me tell Bruce about a venture fund that I'm in the process of starting. And this is a venture fund that's going to be focused on investing in startups in the psychedelic space. Now, I've sort of hinted at doing a venture fund on some past episodes, but this is sort of the first time that I'm openly discussing it with a guest and really talking about it. Um, so it is true. I am starting a venture fund. It's going to be called Empath Ventures. And it, like I said, it's going to focus on startups in the psychedelic space. And I'm going to be leveraging my seven years of professional experience as a portfolio manager at two different hedge funds to try and allocate capital to the psychedelics industry in the best way that I can. So if you're an accredited investor and you're interested in getting involved in some private psychedelics companies through a venture vehicle, well, go to empath.vc. Again, that's empath.vc. Fill out the form there and I will get in touch with you and bring you more information about the fund. Now, before we get to the conversation with Bruce, I just have to give you my standard disclaimer and disclosure that I bring you at the start of every video. This is not financial advice. Do not make any sort of buying, selling, investing, or trading decisions based on what's said in this video. Only make those decisions because you've done your own research. And of course, the disclosure, I do own shares in Mind Medicine, and I also own shares in Red Light Holland and other psychedelic stocks. I own no short positions in any psychedelic companies. So with all that out of the way, let's get to the conversation with Bruce on the integration conversation. Enjoy. Hey, hey Bruce, how you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Perfect. Early morning for you, if I understand where you are. I am in Los Angeles, but you know, uh, early to bed, early to rise, all that stuff, I guess. <laughs> yes, it's uh, not exactly the story you hear about LA, but... Uh... <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know. So I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to talk to me this morning. Oh. You know, you, I, uh, I run this channel that's focused on psychedelics from a business and investing perspective. And, uh, you know, you're, you're a guy who's uh, quite... Influential in that space as well as cannabis, so um, I'm, I'm excited to uh, you know be able to bring my listeners this interview. And why why but, do you? Uh, why did you pick that area? And when did you pick that area? Los Angeles. No, the the topic. Like, why are you doing this? Oh, you know, so I personally have been a user of psychedelics, you know, for a long time, and uh, I have always sort of been interested in the space. And I, I used to work at a hedge fund. And uh, during last summer, during COVID, I started just kind of personally, you know, buying some of these stocks like MindMed and Numinous as they started IPOing. Yeah. But I, I was kind of working full time and didn't really have a lot of time to dig into them. But I sort of left my job in December of last year and uh, was 
trying to find something new. And I started just like spending all my free time really diving deep into these psychedelic stocks because yeah. of something that I was personally interested in. I had a lot of time on my hands and uh, yeah, it just seems like a really interesting thing to get involved in. And, you know, and I've, I've personally experienced the power of psychedelics and it seems like now is like the right time to sort of get involved in the space. So I'm, I'm running this YouTube channel. I'm trying to use some of my investment experience to uh, raise a venture fund that's going to focus on investing in some of the, you know, early stage pre-public um, yeah. companies and yeah just trying to get involved um i, I think so it's a good, that's uh, kind of my story well it's also uh, relatively unique less unique in the psychedelics or psychedelics and spinner than it was in cannabis because anybody who actually had uh professional discipline they were in the space the first person who actually understood how to read a balance sheet an income statement and know what the fuck was going on was alan brockstein mm. so if you like google alan brockstein he's been in this in the cannabis space for about seven or eight years, but he comes from kind of like you, but New York version, right? So he was working in the uh, hedge portfolio manager kind of life uh, in New York and said, this is great, except I hate it. Yeah, that was kind of, you know, <laughs> I, I, I can resonate with that to some degree. <laughs> so he brought his acumen and his experience. And I remember exactly, I was driving on a highway in Toronto and I remember I was going, the first conversation I ever had with this guy was, Traveling, I remember exactly where I was on the highway turning up. I said, can we just stop for a second about this talk? Like, your questions are actually super sensible, but I never get them. Everybody else asks, like, questions about THC percentage, but they don't ask about gross margin. Um, and I said, so describe to me who the hell you are before we go further on this stuff. And so I've had a terrific, if you if you Google him, he, his biggest failing is he didn't achieve what you want to achieve, which is he made a modeled portfolio. So if you Google Alan Brockstein, I think it's a 420 report or something like that, or whatever he puts his hat on, he he fashioned a portfolio way back when and put all the different weightings and allocations. He moved, but he had like five bucks in there. Right, and right. He, he never actually got the real money in million, there. He'd be up a hundred million. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you know that's one of the things that I'm sort of running into now is you know trying to get I'm kind of in the process of raising capital and it's kind of interesting because my background is in the traditional finance space and I think if I was raising money for a traditional hedge fund like based on my experience I could raise you know many millions of dollars quite easily but when I go back to uh, some of these people that are in my network and I say hey I'm doing venture and I'm doing psychedelics you know they kind of look at me like I have horns coming out of my head uh, so it's, it's 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 kind of entertaining. But you're kind of actually doing yourself service disservice. I would say that like, um, I like I like to talk and we use the vocabulary in part because of it at uh, MyMed. I like psychedelics inspired. But if you then say, well, why do you phrase it that way? <clears throat> Instead, it's just been the stupidity of rules. So if you presented to somebody that said that there is this mega, humongously deep intellectual property opportunity that's been available unavailable to be explored for a few generations and um, it's opening up now, which means those who move now have a generational wealth opportunity because it's the stupidity of the rules is the only reason there's an opportunity. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So like, it's, a, it's a regulatory arbitrage in a way. It's not, it is, it is the cannabis and now psychedelics is the biggest macro trade that can occur simply because of regulatory arbitrage. And so like, if, if you have your pedigree, you're talking to people about, Guys, this is a once-in-a-lifetime regulatory arbitrage that's going to actually be fucking massively valued and disruptive because the intellectual property or they haven't, these things haven't been killing people. The pharmaceutical products that have have a fat, huge risk of having their revenues rerouted to these outcomes. 
like that rerouting opportunity because of the uh, public policy arbitrage is really what you're doing. No, no, that's very true. And, you know, that is that is the more in-depth pitch. But, you know, I think that a lot of times people just hear the word psychedelics and it doesn't matter if you say psychedelically inspired, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden, you know, the alarms I, go off in their head. I hear you. I don't, <laughs> even, I don't even start. And with cannabis, I never say cannabis. And this, I don't say psychedelics. I don't use that phrase. I try to explain to people, I think that there is a mega arb on the fact that grandfathers or great-grandfathers set policies that were based on bias of race, uh, perspectives that had no validity. And for some reason, we kept following them. Like, it's remarkable we're not riding on horses still um, <laughs> because they like those too. No, you know? I hear you, man. I hear you. That's that's a very funny way to put it, but you're totally well, right. <laughs> but if you disarm yeah. the target, you, you know, you, you've been the other side of this. When you want to go get the money, first you have to do is disarm the target. And, you know, you've been money. Money is a fearful son of a bitch. Money doesn't know what to do, but it does know that everybody wants it. And so I find it like treating money where you can't sneak up on it, you can't scare it. Um, anyhow, I would make it go check out Brockstein's stuff. I bet if you made a if you made a uh, pro forma model portfolio and say, here are the bets I've, I looked at laying down over this period of time, here's where we'd be. And here now, I, like it gets to the, to the, you know, you're going to, if you're in the flow, there's, I think three quarters of the ones that are out there are overly simplified. I'm going to use psilocybin to change the world is a fucking story that can't be told another time and be believable. That is true. Now, now is the time for that story. Well, let me ask you this. When I, when I do talk to these people about raising money, one of the things that always comes up is parallels to the cannabis industry. You know, people sort of automatically just draw that conclude. They, they draw that comparison themselves. So let me ask you how you see that. I think that um, in terms of a, figuring out sort of like what, how big psychedelics could be. A lot of people will look to the size of the cannabis industry. And to me, there are some similarities. There are some differences. On the one hand, um, you know, obviously both of them are these illegal drugs that are now becoming legal. On the other hand, with a lot of psychedelics, people use them much less frequently than cannabis. Yeah. Um, so do, do you think, and, and then on the other hand, psychedelics also seem to be having much more success with like pharmaceuticalization, for lack of a better word, people are, you know. The, 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 the medical potential, the torque, the power of the broad category of psychedelics far exceeds the medical potential or torque of cannabinoids. And so, um, you know, the, the, I don't know, they're not, I would see them as uh, if you were using two plates, there's, there's an overlap of the two between cannabinoids and psychedelics uh, writ large. But it is a maybe, maybe it's a 10% overlap, maybe it's a 5%, maybe it's a 9%. Um, to me, the real overlap with psychedelics, and as you break them into categories, are going to be with a diversity of um, currently unmanaged psycho psychiatric states and currently poorly managed. So I don't care if like the best practice is Ridland for kids that's 30 years old shit, right? Like you're giving your kid the best science of 30 years ago. Um, but there's also other indications like um, pedophilia uh, generally is viewed as something that is a trauma at youth that then represents itself again later in life where you traumatize youth. Mm -hmm. And the jails are getting filled up with people who've done that. And it's because there's more of it going on. There's no management process. 
And I don't care if you go to some of the most advanced countries in the world in Europe or some of the least, there is no solution for folks with that. Now, there may be ways to use therapy and psychedelics and variants to get in and open things up. Because if what you're dealing with is a trauma that manifests itself in re-traumatizing people, if you deal with the underlying trauma, perhaps you now break the cycle. So I think that there is a diversity of scenarios, all of which are increasing in terms of the causation of the, I'll call it mental state. So the trauma of, I don't know, millions and millions of people being displaced from Africa into Europe. What do you think that's going to do over a generation? The trauma. Uh, yeah, of lots, of, lots of problems. Yeah. Right. Even of COVID, right? You, you, you went into COVID wearing a suit and came out of it talking about psychedelics. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's a big fucking swing. You don't, you mm. don't even really know for sure what's going on with you. You're still trying to figure it out and you will be a year from now. And the good news is you appear to actually, um, you know, you have a calm place, you have some plants, you seem to have like your shit together. If I saw a big pile of garbage behind you, I'd start to say, you might need some mental hygiene, my man. Um, uh, <laughs> but um, the, the, this whole thing is going to have an uneven exit for so many countries and so many people. And the effect on uh, people, we're going to have a whole lot more conversations about uh, when we ask, how are you feeling? It's actually going to be a valid question. That and is true. Not just an intro like it normally right. is. Or a... How are you doing? How are you doing was a open nothing. I think we have evolved rapidly in 18 months where it actually means something. And then the conversations are going to be, if it's not a great answer, what are we doing about it? What are you doing about, you know, are you seeing somebody? Are you using anything to see when you see somebody? Because I think there's going to be with psychedelics an awful lot more caretaker co-mingling with the substance. You know, like a therapist working with you. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, where like if you want to smoke a joint, unless you're looking for a friend, um, you don't need anybody hanging around with you. Um, so I, I just, I, I, to your originating question, I believe the size of market is accelerating. The capabilities to manage mental state are not great, right? Like if you told me that your heart is not working, there's a thousand procedures they can do. When And at, at some point they can even amputate your heart and give you somebody else's. With your head, sort of from the shoulders up, amputation is not currently an option. Now, that's a bit of a complication. We have to fucking actually work with what you have. Okay, what tools do we have? Well, we got some shit from 30 years ago. It's pretty good. Um, so, like, I just, I don't think that people, anybody who wants to question the size of the market or to question the validity of it, it's almost a shitty sales call for you because you're going to have to shock therapy them into understanding a perspective that's not natural to them. And they probably won't invest, but you don't need everybody's money. You just need a couple of people to get it. Sure, absolutely. And I'm well, seeing way more sophisticated capital, way more sophisticated capital in psychedelics than ever came to cannabis. Yeah, we're seeing. I know we're seeing some of the larger uh, biopharma funds kind of getting involved in a lot of these companies. So yeah, it do, it does seem like uh, there there's a lot more willingness to get involved in this than there was in cannabis. Um, what do you think about the medical versus the recreational market? So I know obviously we just talked about the pharmaceutical potential yeah. and the mental health care potential, but of course you're involved with Red Light Holland, which is sort right. of pursuing the, the recreational side. Um, 
Red, Red Light Holland is pretty much the only company, at least that I'm aware of, that is pursuing the recreational side. And so that's sort of, you know, a, a very bold bet, I guess. You know, you're sort of going against the grain there. What, what, what do you think about the recreational potential? Do you well, think that we'll ever see that in the U.S.? Or do you think that's, that's a long way off? Well, it's, it, in some states, it's exactly the same level of governance as cannabis. Right? Like if you go to Oregon, cannabis is no more legal than the management of uh, psilocybin. So it, it is a potential, but you also will find that um, Jamaica, Brazil, Netherlands, uh, now a couple of the Caribbean islands working their way through having it. Um, it's kind of a bit like THC. Nobody's inventing this as a recreational option. All they're doing is managing it. And the reason governments will permit you to manage the recreational is because of taxation and squeezing out the illicit trade. Um, so, um, to me, we don't need in red Lake Holland, we don't need the whole world to adopt it. If we're the leader in the brand and the, the edgy player there, um, and we have real cash flows now we can app append to that a variety of other products. Like you're not opposed to THC if you're cool with psilocybin. So we can start to append to it other small niche plays in other markets. And we have no boundary on our optionality of what we do other than it can't be actually regulated to be illegal. If you haven't gotten around to making it illegal, that means in our world, it's legal enough, right? And so that creates, there's two types of companies, ones which have no short-term cash flow and maybe a home run, and ones which may have short-term cash flow and have to determine how do I hit the ball further? And so I like having one of each. So I have MindMed for the first and I have Red Light for the second. And um, the optionality that exists for Red Light is astounding. When I say optionality, like um, things we can buy, jurisdictions we can enter, and how we take the brand, like the whole point of the red light. And when I, if I get involved, which I'm almost certain to become the chair of it, because I've been the advisory chair to both of them that we're putting together. If I get involved as the chair, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about and be even more out there is the red light district is essentially where sex workers went. So that was pseudo regulated for the benefit, the benefit and safety of both sides of the transaction. Um. Well, probably the least well fucking regulated thing we still have on the planet is a sex trade. And I think that the red light theme has to be like everything we're trying to do is create a level of trust, certainty and safety. And so um, one of the things we're going to be very clearly advocating for if I'm involved is that the sex trade actually exists. It's real and it's unsafe and unfair principally the party receiving the cash because they get a small fraction for the action and they got all the risk. And so um, that fits very well with the red light positioning. And uh, it's one of the things that I just think is, I just don't like all these stupid things. Like, oh, you can't have THC. Why? Like, I don't care if you have THC. I couldn't care if you ever buy anything I sell, but I don't want you to reject it without an intelligent understanding of your decision. Yeah, to totally agree with you on that. I mean, the laws need to make more sense. Um, and the conversations when, when, have to be, the conversations have to not involve people who think they're 11 or 12 years old and tee hee 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 over every topic. No, this is real shit. Talk about it. Because if you want to spend your whole day talking about a baseball score, or a soccer score, or a football score, I don't get how you're living your life. Add some yeah, actual yeah. content. Sure, sure. Add some, add some, you know, sex and drugs, some real stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm, and I'm not telling you to do it. I'm just telling you to think about how the world is and do you like it that way? 
rather than ignoring how it is. I agree. Couldn't agree more. Well, let me ask you another question. Um, we see with a lot of these psychedelic companies, as well as with some of the cannabis companies earlier on in the cannabis boom, there's a lot of, especially with this, the stocks that are working with like these Canadian exchanges, there's a lot of like paid promotion. And, you know, every, every company does this, whether it's a good company or a bad company, but the line between paid stock promotion and like pumping is kind of a blurry line. And, you know, I talk to a lot of people on like Reddit and stuff that are sort of new investors. What advice would you give to, you know, maybe newer investors on how to like sort of cut that line and determine, you know, which companies are legit and which companies aren't when every single company is sort of paying to promote themselves? Yeah, this, this practice grew. So like when I started tweeting, I can't, I paid zero. I did two things. I had a bunch of, um, if you're going to encounter circumstances frequently in life, you should stop and think about it and codify exactly what you think about that circumstance. So you don't have to think each time. You just pull out, oh, this is my answer. I've, I've established I will live with this answer forever. And so some of the answers when I started that I live with forever that I'd established was I don't do warrants. When people say, why? So, well, depending on how you price them and the duration, most people can't actually comprehend the volatility of a stock and therefore they have no idea. They think it's future free money when in fact it's giving away everything. And the person who gets the warrant sells the stock as soon as they can and holds the warrant. And I don't like that because it's a cap on other shit. So when I'm worth more, I don't get valued more. So I don't do warrants. If you want to give me money, common stock straight up every time. Second thing is I don't pay to speak. I don't pay for writers. I don't pay for promoters. I pay zero. And as soon as everybody understands that, then you focus, well, how do you get visibility, earned media, legitimately presenting yourself. So um, I think the level of disclosure on these things, because it's super uneven, how you pay, what you can even pay people who are these letter writers in stocks, in options and shit. Um, so I, I hate them, the whole process, because they don't have to disclose it till the very bottom. 99% of the people live on a headline. Um, so I, I would say that um, a question you should ask at every AGM is, do you use stock promoters and what is your annual maximum budget you will spend on it, including all values of equities, cash, or other instruments that are used to support them? Any company that spends over 100 grand a year on this, don't invest in them. So 100 grand, that's the threshold right there. Well, I, I, I would say zero, but the problem is you're correct. It's become so commonplace. Like um, when I came into MindMed, they were already, this is like at the very, very beginning, they'd already signed some people up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, Red Lights had this, Kreisler's had, I, I think um, you need alignment. One of the best things to think about in every transactional structure you do is, do I have alignment with all parties? And in the paid promote, you have, you don't have alignment between the inside operators and the outside shareholders because the short-termism in these promotes. Yeah. So you were never, so you were aware of the paid promotion MindMed was doing and you were not a fan of it. That, I, I, listen, at the end of the day, be newsworthy. I hate to say it. The people, there's, it's such a small cast of folks who read the stuff. So if you actually want to increase your value, increase your demand for your stock. You know how you do that? Increase the number of people who want to buy it. Yeah, do Don't something interesting. The new the coverage will come basically. Right. right? And, and if yeah. you have a massive, I can't remember how many millions of shareholders, literally millions of shareholders I had at Canopy. Because I had almost no institutional. But the benefit of that is when you have a large 
pool of shareholders, it actually increases the ability for everybody who bought, everybody who tells somebody increases the demand for the stock. And there's a, a tipping point where um, it's very important. And like when I look at uh, Reddit groups, et cetera, I look at how many people are in the group paying attention to the topic, not necessarily the content. Yeah, absolutely. Well, since, since we just touched on MindMed, let me ask you, you know, the other obvious question, which is, you know, I know you're not as involved in MindMed as you were before, but um, one of the things that a lot of people on Reddit are talking about right now is that many MindMed insiders, including yourself, have sold a lot of shares recently. And there's a lot of debate on those forums about how should investors interpret that? Is it a bad sign? What does well, it mean? You know, how, how should investors interpret the fact that you, as well as many other insiders, you know, yeah. including JR, have sold a lot of shares? Well, I, I will put each in different buckets, right? So you have to look at the instances of each of them. So I think uh, what I saw for disclosure is that I sold uh, another chunk, uh, two board members sold, Chuck and JR did, did what JR, but JR's out, right? Um, so in my case, I invested two years ago this month as the very first check. I would ask you and everybody else I met, would you please write a check? You know what I got from everybody? No, 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 no. I had about four or five of my guys write checks. You know what they, they now do? They say, what else are you doing? What else are you doing? Because people who make a lot of money. Where I am on this thing is now I've been two years in, we've had a great run. Um, I still have about um, 3.75 million, more than 3.75 million shares. So I find when you have more than 3.75 million shares and something you tend to still give quite a bit of a shit. Um, so I'm, I'm engaged on it, but I also have 11 other projects, two of which are having cash calls right now. One of them is a thing called Ruckify, which is buying another software company so we can actually change the way people share stuff because buying things and storing them is stupid. It ruins the planet and making them and you never use them all the time so you don't monetize them. So the whole point of Ruckify is if you have a paddleboard, you can't possibly use it 724. You will actually be way too fit. So like rent out and make money off your paddleboard. So we have people making three to 10,000 bucks every quarter monetizing assets that were in their house or garage. And the good news is they get to keep them and the bad news is that the stores sell less. The good news is the planet gets destroyed less by making all this shit. Um, but I got to I got to put about seven and a half million bucks into that so I can get it ready to go public uh, in October. Right. So, so th um, this is more of a personal portfolio rebalancing for you rather than a change in your position on the outlook of the company. Yeah, over the and long like term. it's been a, it's been a great run up, but I still have three point seven more than three point seven five million shares in there. Um, so when I'm doing stuff like that, like if you looked at where I'm involved. I tend to not invest. What I tend to do is buy part-time jobs. So I believe I've represented MindMed way more than 100 times around the globe in person and virtually by presenting them and explaining why it's a portfolio strategy, which is better than a single molecule approach. Because you now talk to very bright people in a bunch of geographies and you give them downside protection, risk mitigation, join the platform, share risk, share costs, increase the possibility of being a winner. Um, that has been my push. If you ask JR who, who brought up the idea of the arc and why we have to have an arc, it was me. I said, listen, I don't go to a casino and put everything on red 12 at the roulette table. The first thing I do, because it wins every time I do bet on red 12, but I also then like to have a hedging strategy. And so our hedging strategy has got to be a diversity. Um, and so, um, that, I love that one. Um, but I like, um, no one ever likes, like, even when I, Okay, I think the first time I sold a decent chunk of stock in uh, Canopy was like 65 bucks. And I'd been running the thing for five or six years. It was worth about 15 billion. And people are like, why are you selling? I'm like, it's called putting cash in bank. Like there's a certain amount of 
you know, I'm married, right? Got spouse. It's much easier to not answer the question daily. So uh, um, is there any plan to fill up the bank account a bit? No, I've done that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I appreciate the answer on that. I think you know a lot of people will be happy with that answer. And you know, the the final question on MindMed, you know, and then we can talk maybe more about red light and some other things. But what do you think on uh, about Jr. You know, stepping down? There hasn't really been a lot of press about that. Um, I, I guess they're sort of in the process of a new CEO search. Um, do you have any maybe commentary on that? Well, it's been interesting, right? So when I arrived, which was essentially when the formation of the company occurred. Um, there were two co-founders who'd never really met each other. One came from um, uh, the 18MC invention side, and the other was JR coming from the capital markets, not really capital markets, but trying to be capital markets. Um, and they said, well, we need a CEO, so they picked some guy. I don't think that guy's coffee got cool before they changed their mind and didn't want him. So then he was gone. So there's CEO number one guy. Then Steven steps down as being co-CEO and becomes board member. Then JR, after about four months of being sole CEO, exits. If you look at Rob and the kind of candidate we're looking for, I would suggest that's probably the most qualified candidate we've ever had. And there are many qualified candidates who would like that job. And so sometimes when you're starting things up, um, people come and go. I would have felt better if JR would have uh, wanted to really kill it for the next year. Um, he and I could argue and bitch and complain at each other, but, um, I found at least having a vigorous fight with him about an angle and then actioning it could happen and did happen like every week. Um, so I, I do miss that connection. I think that connection will reestablish with Rob and whoever the next person is. Um, but, um, I do think now they've got enough cash focus and duration that they're getting to the knitting like really getting to it. And so that's a different skill set, right? When you're talking phase two, phase three, when you're talking intellectual property, those are, those are skills that now when you do that, the capital comes calling. For the beginning, shit, man. When I was trying to get people to invest, I had one investment banker. He said, Bruce, I need trying to market this thing like a hole in the head. Because nobody wanted, I'm talking two years ago, July, August, September. No one, they're like, are you mad? First, you go from THC. Now you're going to be like doing LSD or what? Like I said, guys, it's back to the macro trade on just stupid public policy. And I said, if you look at the potential of these molecules, it's far superior to THC and CBD. So like, why, why not explore the potential to be involved in that? Because if they work, they don't kill people and everybody's in this, you know, is pre-COVID. But I said, mental health is a conversation in a generation has become legitimate. Like your parents... Your parents didn't say to their friends, you know, um, yeah, we're seeing a therapist about this, maybe in LA, in LA do anything, but um, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a permissible discussion. Uh, yeah, totally. And, and even just in the last five years, the conversation oh. around that has changed so much. I just want to dissect one thing you said back there. You said sort of, you wish that JR had wanted to maybe stay for another year and kill it. So are you, am I understanding that correctly and saying that maybe this decision was mostly JR's? It wasn't like he was yeah, pushed they, out or anything. I'd say it was kind of like a, it was a decision, a bunch of adults were involved, but, um, you know, th th this thing's um, really had the wheels rolling for about two years, 18 months. And it's done a lot, right? It's built a bank account, made really strategic acquisitions so that we have a balanced, increasingly balanced portfolio. And it's attracted super smart science people, like unbelievable. Um, 
to me, uh, the rocket ships rocking, it's fun to ride those. Um, and so the sad part is when you're taken off the rocket ship or you leave, you don't realize how much fun you were having, even if most days were crazy. Um, yeah, I, I've experienced some similar things like that before. Yeah, you know, yeah. you're in a crazy situation, you want to get out, and then as soon as you're out, you sort of you sort of miss the chaos. But I, oh, I, I generally am not too concerned about you know the JR leaving. In fact, I think it is. Um, in many ways, getting a you know an experienced pharmacy or even someone like the I, I forget his name, but the guy who's currently there from the USONA yeah, Institute, yeah. Rob. Yeah, um, I mean he was at USONA when they got breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA. I mean that's like a yep. great track record yeah. skill set. So great, great I, I'm track. actually more excited about MindMed now than I was six months ago, to be honest. Yeah, I think we um, we stayed in first gear and the RPMs were up to about nine thousand. Now we've shifted to second gear. And so the, the key thing is when you shift, you got to get the momentum going and it feels, you know, we have a board meeting tomorrow. It feels like the momentum's going, but uh, yeah, I, I would say like running at 9,000 RPMs in first gear, you don't do that forever without blowing something up. Absolutely. I think that's a great analogy. Um, I know we, uh, I want to be respectful of your time and not go too long, but I do have a few other questions um, about red light. So I know that, you know, microdosing is kind of the big thing that red light Holland is talking about. Um, obviously you might expand it to some other things, but microdosing has not had as much success research-wise as macrodosing. Now, microdosing is very popular. Like tons of people like to talk about microdosing, but yeah. the research hasn't necessarily shown it to be as effective. I, not, not that it's sort of disproven it, but it's sort of like an open question. Do you think that um, Red Light might end up doing some research studies around microdosing to prove its efficacy? Well, yeah, but remember, much of, we're kind of like applied science and where it gets applied could go as far as that, but comes back to as simple as when you say micro, do you know what you mean? And is many, the many people do not. Yeah. Right. And is, and is the quantity you're getting and the quality the same every time? Because maybe a bit of your micro problem is that it could be bordering on macro or bordering on zero. Um, and so like a consistent quality delivery. Um, part of the reason we're bringing Creso into the fold is they've been very science driven European approval, Switzerland base for that. So I think there's going to be a, a, remember the whole point of it is trust us. It's what you, we promise to deliver you and it's being put together safely. So that, that brand um, will do that. It may branch out and reach some of those studies, but at the end of the day, <clears throat> people buy a lot of stuff for fun without like, I haven't found a lot of really good studies on like tequila, um, but people buy a lot of it. And um, so there, there's a there's a portion of the business that will benefit from the study. There's a portion of it that says, you know what, I enjoy it. I'm right microdose because it works for me. Absolutely, I, I can attest that I have done a lot of uh, citizen science N of one studies on tequila and can you know attest to its efficacy. Yeah, but you, <laughs> um, you know what I mean. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, you don't need a clinical study for everything necessarily, but. Um, yeah. And, and in fact, the, the clinical studies might be sort of um, a double-edged sword because that might make um, regulators feel that it needs to be sold through a pharmacy under a doctor rather than maybe recreationally available, which I guess is what you're going for. With yeah. And you might, you might focus more on like safety. Like this is safer than selling alcohol. Right. A safety trial rather than, a, oh, this cures whatever. Yeah. Right. Because if, if what you can say is Mr. or Mrs. Regulator this shit has less liability than the things you currently sell, that begins to be a productive conversation. 
Yeah. No, and I it think that, already. that makes sense. Yeah, it exists already and it's being supplied by the bad guys. Um, and I don't mean like writ large, but you just your supply chain on this shit, who knows who? If it's not if it's not regulated, um, everything you know about the supply chain is once upon a time. Yeah, once upon a time, they washed their hands carefully. And once upon a time, this was transited without other uh, substances around it. Once upon a time, this was never with anybody who owned a firearm illegally. Once upon a time, like this shit, you just don't know. And so it's better to regulate, educate, and monetize. Regulate, educate, monetize. Got it. Yeah, makes sense. Um, I guess one last question, and then you know I'll let you go. But for, for investors in Red Light Holland, what is maybe uh, something you want to leave them with? What are the next catalysts they should look for? What, uh, what are some things that they should understand about the company? Making this acquisition is a big move. And that, that should indicate to people a character of aggressiveness to seek how, to, how do we keep expanding the business? Meaning, how do we expand where it plays, what its revenue is, and where its brands matter? And so it's this acquisition, but then what's the next one? What's the one after that? And so I think this should become a machine which can accretively acquire things because it trades better than the things we're buying on a dollar for dollar basis of revenue or any other key metric. And so on that basis, shareholders who are holding should get benefit from thoughtful deal making. And um, it, it, the management team is it's what I like about it is it's so thin. Now, as we redo our org chart, thinking about post acquisition, the quality and capabilities of the people you can bring in when you're going to have a balance sheet with 40 or 50 million bucks, a strong trading currency, the capacity to access USTHC, international psychedelics. Um, it, it is, to me, it's probably the most optionality-filled investment they'll have. And I mean the optionality of the company to express itself into markets, which we think would cause acceleration of value. Yeah. So you see Red Light Holland, th this is not just one acquisition and done. You will continue to make acquisitions as you, as, as possible. And uh, Zero chance I would go to the board and be a board chair so that we can sit there and review mon mundane operating. Oh, great. We had a quarter. No, no, no. This is, this is like, um, I see this one as an opportunity to be the aggressive brand because you said it at the beginning. It's the only one playing in this space, the way we're playing. So it's got to be aggressive, elbows out, and go. I love it, man. I love that aggression. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope that we can do this again at some point down the line. Okay. Be well. Talk to you. <laughs> Bye -bye. All right, man. Later. Bye.